I'm Adam Simmons from Project Geospatial and the host of the Geospatial Frontier. I want to welcome you all to our Investor Perspective Panel, another episode of our Sensor Showdown series partnered with URSA. Before we get started, I'd like to introduce the moderator for this session, Jean Suchadolsky. After a brief career designing rockets at Boeing, she earned a JD from the University of Southern California and commenced a lengthy career as a patent and corporate counsel for major high-tech and aerospace firms, including Microsoft, Boeing, and Honeywell. Jean recently earned an LLM in space, cyber, and telecommunications law from University of Nebraska, thereby indulging her professional interest in space law. She is a lecturer from in, for the International Space University Executive Course and led the pilot phase of the Space Research and Policy Center at the University of Washington. In addition to her legal career, Jean has extensive expeditionary and field science experience. She was elected a member of the Explorers Club in 2009 and is a multi-year veteran of the U.S. Antarctic program, including wintering over as the manager of McMurdo Station. Jean currently serves as Patent and Intellectual Property Counsel for the Naval Undersea Warfare Center, Keyport. Now I want to turn it over to Jean Suchadowski as she will start the panel, introduce her panelists, and get started with the discussion. Adam, thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And thank you to everybody who's uh, joining us from wherever you may be. And good afternoon or good morning, wherever, wherever that happens to be for you. As Adam mentioned, I am an attorney with the United States Navy. So I must give the obligatory disclaimer that any of the opinions expressed by me or the panel are their own or my own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of the United States Navy or the United States government. And so thank you for indulging me in that uh, obligatory disclaimer. And let's introduce our panelists for today. So uh, with us, we have Lisa Rich. Uh, Lisa is the founding and chief operating officer of Explore. Uh, space as a service. Lisa Rich is a successful serial entrepreneur, investor, strategist, and communicator. She is founder and managing partner of Hemisphere Ventures an early stage venture capital firm focused on frontier tech, synthetic biology, robotics, drones, and of course, space. Hemisphere has invested 200 plus US companies since 2014. Their portfolio has 17 space companies, including Axiom Space, the world's first commercial space station, Umbra, high resolution space-based SAR imagery, Kubos, mission and flight control software for satellites, Planet IQ, High Definition Weather Forecasting, and Made in Space, Space Manufacturing. In addition to Hemisphere Ventures, Ms. Rich is founder of Explore, a commercial space exploration company focused on expanding knowledge of our solar system via commercial space to the Moon, Mars, Venus, Lagrange points, and near-Earth asteroids. She serves on the board of patrons for Commercial Space Flight Federation, has provided testimony to advanced commercialization for the space industry, and in 2019 spoke at space industry events hosted by the U.S. State Department, New Space, the Center for Space Commerce and Finance, and Techstars. A member supporter of the Planetary Society, B612, and the Keck Foundation, Lisa holds a BS in English from Loyola University, Chicago, a master's degree from Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, and is also proficient in French and Italian. Lisa, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Our second panelist is Mike Mealing. 
He's a general partner with Starbridge Venture Capital, an early stage space technology focused venture fund. He has helped build several space and internet startups over the years, ranging from suborbital launch services to a taste-based social media. Starting in 2015, he pivoted to venture capital as CTO of the Serif Group, a hybrid angel VC fund with 76, I'm going to guess that's Australian million, uh, in, and 308 LPs. He received an MBA from Georgia Tech in 2011. Welcome and thank you, Michael, for joining us. Our next panelist is Mark Spoto. Mark is a co-founder and managing director of Razor Edge Ventures based in Reston, Virginia. He focuses on space, software, sensor, and autonomous technologies. His investments include Spaceflight Industries, Hawkeye 360, 908 Devices, Mersive, Zoom Data, and Ursa Space Systems. Prior to Razor's Edge, Mark was a partner at the Reston Office of National Technology Law Firm, Cooley LLP, in the VC and MA areas. And prior to that, he was an aerospace engineer at McDonnell Douglas Space Systems, working on the Titan IV rocket. And our last panelist I'm welcome to, uh, welcoming today is Will Porteous. Will is a general partner with RRE Ventures and also serves as the firm's chief operating officer. During his 20-year career as an investor, Will has served on the boards of more than 20 companies. He is currently a director of Breather, BuzzFeed, Nanit, Paperless Post, Pattern, Pilot Fiverr, Spaceflight, where he serves as chairman, Spire, and Ursa. Will is also chairman of the Dockery Farms Foundation, which he founded. From 2003 to 2018, Will served as an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, where he taught a popular course on venture capital. Will holds an MBA from Harvard University, an MS from the London School of Economics, and a BA with honors from Stanford University. Welcome, Will, and thank you for joining us today. Well, I'd like to kick off with uh, kind of looking at uh, where things are today in the investment and, and VC space. So according to a, a recent publication by uh, Space Angels, in 2019, space companies received over $5.8 billion in investment. Of that number, approximately 72% went to large private companies such as SpaceX and Blue Origin. And of the total $5.8 billion in investment, roughly $5.1 billion went to later stage funding rounds. So I'd like to uh, ask the panel, and starting with you, Will, um, serious investment in next space commercial activity began roughly 10 years ago. And as we see from those remarks, um, we're getting a lot of late stage invest investment. 2015 kind of marked the year that those investments really began to take off. So what are investors looking for or expecting to see today from those early investments as they're now maturing? Well, thanks, Gene. Uh, I think it's I think it's a great question. It's it's the question that's probably on the minds not just of everybody on the panel, but I think all of our partners. Uh, we we've all seen wonderful flows into this sector over the last ten years, as you just described. And um, you know, there, a, a lot has has been put in place 
for these companies to to turn into great businesses. Um, I think this period of investment in the space sector um, has reflected the fact that we're not just building companies on a standalone basis, but we're we're building companies that depend on the success of other companies for their business plans to achieve fruition. I do think that the latter part of 2020 and 2021 is a period in which we are going to finally get a look at the great businesses that are being built inside this sector. I think we will see some of the first IPO filings uh, out of companies in this sector late 2020, certainly in 2021. And I think when we when we get a, a real look at those financial statements, we will see a couple of things have been proven. There's tremendous operating leverage that's being uh, being achieved in these businesses as so much of the space industry moves to defining its capabilities in software. And there's tremendous opportunity for profits and cash flow um, by the decoupling of, of the value chain represented by a lot of these companies. So I know we're, we're, we at RRE are kind of looking to see not just exits, but to see the story of what makes these great businesses being told in a much more public way during this period. And I think it's crucial because I think that we need that piece of the story in order to just sustain the inflows uh, that the whole industry uh, is going to need to support so many of the companies. Thank you, Will. Um, Mike, uh, Michael, do you have anything to add to that? Or Mark or Lisa? Um, I, I think in our case, uh, it, the, the IPOs would be nice, but um, one of the things that we would like to see, and we do expect to see it uh, even this year, are mergers and acquisitions uh, into some of the, the, the larger companies, roll-ups. Um, we've seen a few of that in uh, private equity firms by doing some uh, buyouts of some more troubled assets. But I think in 2020, we're seeing some larger PE funds buying assets and putting them together as well as uh, some of the primes actually starting to, to acquire some of the technologies they need to be able to stay competitive. And uh, in a lot of cases, it's not just the technologies, it's the management practices that, um, and the business models that the primes and some of these PE funds are looking for. So I'm expecting to see that get a lot more healthy over the next year, year and a half. Fantastic. Um, Mark or Lisa, anything else? Yeah, I'll I'll jump in. I was trying to figure out where the mute button was. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, just to add to what Will and Michael have said, I mean, I think particularly in the later stage, what what people are looking for, you know, principally our investors is, okay, you know, these were all promising opportunities three, four, five years ago. Which ones have actually demonstrated that they're real businesses out of the promise? And, you know, in, in the venture community, you always see this happen where, where there's a big opportunity that people identify. There's a bunch of smart entrepreneurs who have big ideas, um, many people attacking similar problems. Ultimately, business models, you know, uh, evolve and some may be successful and some aren't. <clears throat> yep. So, so at this stage, for the later stage businesses, we're we're trying to show that the markets are shaping up the way people thought they might a while back, and that may not always be the case. And maybe that some have become more adoptive of the new technology than others, um, and um, showing that you've built a diversified business that can stand on its own or become attractive as an M and A candidate. 
that's that's where we're at on some of those first wave bets, you know, which which you probably are going to call space 1.0. So that's a good segue, Mark, because I'm going to let Lisa pick up on that thread in the context as well with the next question I have, which is, according to the same investment report that I just cited, there were 143 early stage investment rounds in 2019, totaling about 600 86 million uh, US dollars in investment. So I'd like to talk about um, those first ways of investing and how that, as they're maturing, how that might be influ influencing the current early stage and other than that late stage investing we've just been talking about. Uh, Lisa, do you still think uh, investors believe that uh, space is a good place to invest? And how might that first investment wave and all the things our panelists just uh, mentioned, might those be impacting or influencing subsequent investment? Lisa? Sure. Thank you, Jane. I think we've got a few forces at work, and that is the dollars that have been invested previously in what we would call Space 1.0 companies and the funds that have put significant dollars behind those companies and are waiting for the exit opportunity or the, the growth and the proof points. So um, those companies, there's been some that have failed and some that we're waiting to still see where they can go. And so as they've needed new uh, a new influx of capital, the funds that support them, they tend to continue supporting them. And so more money goes to those companies while you have a new batch of companies, which I would call space 2.0 companies that are the early stage that are looking for investment and finding that not just COVID is, is freezing the, the coffers, but uh, the fact that companies are uh, larger firms is, are waiting for proof points with their prior investments. So unfortunately, I think it leads the early stage companies at a loss to try and get in the door for um, being uh, uh, having some of that capital available to them. So there are some inherent disadvantages, I would say, for the earlier stage companies right now. They probably are sourcing the family offices that are have maybe a longer-term view for capital. And also um, that it's the smarter early-stage companies that are smarter, if, if you will, um, looking to find other sources of capital by using um, government funding, which is more available than it has been in the past, to uh, obtain non-dilutive funding. So that is a new way for early stage companies to survive and thrive in this environment. Great. Thank you, Lisa. Um, Mark, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Lisa has hit it pretty well on the head. Um, you know, th there's an interesting dichotomy in the capital markets where there's a pretty good supply of really early stage venture capital and a really deep uh, supply of late stage. And it's that in between, right? Like we're not talking about angel and seed investments, right? Like th those are when you're investing behind a smart entrepreneur with a big idea. And we're not talking about businesses that are doing 20, 30, 50, $100 million of revenue. It's the in between those two things where the capital supply is not as robust. 
And if you're in that marketplace, which I am, and I think Will is as well, um, you know, what you're trying to do is learn from the first crop and figure out, you know, how you apply those lessons to the next crop. And, you know, the situation we have with the, with the health crisis, you know, it has a stunting effect because you don't know if what you're seeing is, you know, a real uh, situation with the business or if it's a macro forced impact. And so you're, you're wanting to see more data before you're placing more investments and more bets. Okay. How about you, Will? Anything to add? You know, I, I think um, Mark said it very well. I, we're frankly seeing some terrific companies right now in the sector that we would like to be investing in, we would like to be doing more with, but we've got to see a little bit more progress out of our existing portfolio in the space sector, a little bit more certainty um, around their financial position before we can really expand the scope of our activities. You know, over the last five years investing in this market, I've come to feel that access to capital is really the fundamental uh, input in terms of the success of a lot of these teams and a lot of these businesses. Um, the, the space industry is is full of extraordinary people doing amazing things from an innovation standpoint. It's just a question of making sure we can sustain the capital flows to get that innovation into a productive state of the business. And so I look forward to a time later this year when I can say, yep, that company's fully funded and that company's fully funded. And now we can really turn our attention to some of the great things that we've seen that are a little little earlier in their, in their development. Great, thank, thank you. Michael, anything to add? Sure, I think one of the things that um, we're seeing in this kind of second crop uh, of, of people moving into the sector in terms of investments, um, as well as even the companies that we're looking at is um, the investors are far more savvy about the rest of the market and where um, value is, is actually held and created with the companies that use the launch technology that was part, you know, a large part of what was developed in, in the space 1.0. Uh, the investors have gotten more savvy. They they do as even Elon has shown with Starlink is the applications make more margins than the the providers of the infrastructure that enable those applications, and so we're seeing a lot more applications. We're seeing a lot more um, smarter business models, and not just component companies and launch companies. Um, we're getting a much more robust um, environment. But um, as Will said, it's that series A kind of valley of death that we're seeing in some cases where companies can get one to two million in a, in a seed stage, but can't get to the next level. Um, and I think that's going to be one of the challenges right now with, with the pandemic and everything is, is the capital available when the companies need it, when they hit that period, or else can I survive past that point? And that's one of the things where diversity of funding sources, where whether it's government or private or revenue, um, revenue is always the, be the best way to fund a company. Um, but when you're challenged, you have to be creative. Well, thank you for that, Michael. That's actually uh, part of what you said is actually a good segue into what I had queued up as sort of a next thought or question, which is in those early rounds of investment, we saw a lot of investment in launch capabilities and in component and LEO uh, satellites and solutions. And I think you started to hit on that. So I'm going to like to ask on our 
uh, remaining panelists, are you starting to see a transition in investment into uh, things that are more like services or solutions or systems delivery rather than in that individual component or uh, hardware or launch services uh, segment? Uh, well, So I think our view has, has for a long time been that over time, the value chain would break apart. But in the near term, a lot of, a lot of leverage is achieved through vertical integration. When Mark and I first got involved in Spaceflight Industries, they were determined to build an optical imaging constellation, but they were doing everything from their own launch brokerage to their own component development to, to a lot of a lot of other pieces in the value chain and we've seen the same thing at spire where we had to not only build our own spacecraft but fully forward integrate in the weather market in terms of development of models so that our the customers that we wanted could really take advantage of the data that we had so i think i think this question of sort of how vertically integrated to be is is sort of at the core of everyone's investment thesis and it's it's a moving target you know we're we're outside of a couple of categories like propulsion is a category where i think we, there's amazing component level work that's happening and you're going to see successful propulsion companies that achieve great valuation outcomes like that's one component category there may be some comparable things in a few other areas, but by and large, I think the, the big opportunities still require a high degree of vertical integration. Thank you, Will. Mark, are you seeing something similar? Well, yeah, I can speak to my own experience. Um, you know, we, we invested early on uh, in Spaceflight and then in Hawkeye 360, which are clearly you know, hardware-driven sensor businesses that are driving data. And, um, you know, we have a couple of other investments that participate in a meaningful way here in the space marketplace that are not sensor businesses, but we felt like these were logical adjacents. One is doing cybersecurity um, with a real focus on uh, complying with government requirements on the cyber side. And the other is doing edge processing and analyzing these massive streams of data that are coming down in different formats and in you know, different phenomenologies. Um, and then most recently, we, we, we felt like uh, there was a real opportunity to apply something like the Netflix model, if you want to think about it that way, um, and look for businesses that were aiming to repurpose assets, if you will. And that's really how we came to URSA. Um, you know, Adam and team, you know, have done some amazing things on, on SAR analytics. Early on, I think Adam would have told you he was really excited to build his own spacecraft. And I think quickly realized, maybe I don't need to build my own spacecraft. There are plenty of SAR assets out there that aren't being commercialized properly. Maybe I can kind of create my own virtual constellation, you know, through contractual arrangements and then deliver the value in terms of the analytics on that data. And so is, is that Netflix? It's not Netflix, but it is definitely taking some massive investment that other people have made um, and finding new value propositions for them. And so that's that's really a, an additional angle we have played here. All right, thank you, Mark. I'd like to pull our remaining two panelists into that uh, conversation by extending it just a tad. 
which is that, you know, is space investing uh, mostly still about on-orbit capabilities? And what is the mood and appetite for other types of space investment? And do these opportunities fit this sort of solutions service component model or component model that we were talking about earlier? Uh, Michael, what do you think? Um, Um, so I, I agree, and that's part of uh, pretty much our thesis on the on the next fund that we're raising, which is um, it, it is about those um, more robust business models in orbit that that everything else kind of enables. Um, so just a couple of examples that we're looking at uh, out in the world. Uh, the, the first is uh, uh, Explore, which is Lisa's company, which is. Um, looking at be one of the only companies that we've been looking at that is beyond Leo applications and has a business model that actually can scale and turn that into a business. Um, what's one of the reasons we're also investors in, in Axiom along with Hemisphere and the, the business models that they enable. Um, one of our uh, theses is that in space manufacturing and uh, of materials, but also of complex structures is going to be one of the basically a third leg of, of Leo commercialization beyond EO and comms. And it's those, those all depend on that launch infrastructure that we've developed and developing the, the new infrastructure. Um, beyond that, we're looking at uh, space supply chain specific um, enablement and, and uh, software for supply chain management. Um, but even then we're looking at, at long-term companies. Um, we know that uh, asteroid mining is not going to be something that happens in the short term, but there are great opportunities in using some of the same technologies for deriving a great deal of value in terrestrial mining. So terrestrial mining automation with direct applications. Um, there's um, a lot of businesses that are in the space sector that uh, are not at the component level and the launch level that we're uh, looking closely at. And a lot of them have to do with it in space manufacturing is the other key component. Um, but what we're seeing also is new technologies, for example, um, antenna technologies from Umbra Lab enabling not just synthetic aperture radar, but a lot of other applications that uh, a lot of people really haven't thought about yet because of the ability to create a very large dish um, in a very small space for uh, taking care um, taking advantage of rideshare opportunities, but in it with RF capabilities that was previously impossible. All right, thank you, Michael. Lisa, um, do you have anything to add? What are your thoughts on that question? Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that when, as we talk about components, I think that to some degree, there's been uh, a feeling that hardware and the, the problem of hardware has been solved and that investors can invest in data and analytics. And to a certain degree, they can. Obviously, Ursa has a fantastic um, solution for that. But you want the quality data and you have to have the next gen hardware to achieve that. And so with Umbra that um, Michael was mentioning, you're talking about a capability that disrupts 
um, the existing satellites that are the size of a school bus that could now be um, a small sat that can cost instead of $750 million under $10 million to produce, actually under $5 million to produce, and produce exquisite imagery with that's extremely exciting probably to this audience. Um, the idea of quarter meter SAR, the ability to see at night, the ability to see through the clouds, um, vibration data so that you could see um, if pumps are moving and the rate of oil moving through a pipeline or the height of a curb um, on the street for maybe autonomous driving applications. So, you know, quality in, quality out. So we need to have that next gen hardware capability and there are companies like Umbra working on that. But on the ground, there are interesting companies as well. We have one, a hive mapper that is stitching together um, input data from drones, from um, planes, from dash cams, and they can stitch all that data and look at the different elevations and different angles and create a composite image that's uh, temporal imagery that's, of course, of very high value. So, you know, you've got this um, forces at work here with innovative companies saying, let's get higher quality data and then we'll think about the analytics and that will be that much more valuable in the future. All right. Thank you, Lisa. All right. I'd like to shift uh, subject matter a little bit with the panel and uh, talk a little bit about risks that might be present in the marketplace today. So investing is always full of risks. Um, we've got uh, three that I'd really like to uh, key up that I think are kind of top of mind for people today. The first, obviously, the panel has touched on a little bit in their earlier comments is the pandemic, and then foreign investment and cybersecurity. So let's start with that one that's top of mind. Uh, everyone here today has been touched in some way by the pandemic. Uh, I am coming to you from my dining room, for example, and I think we're all seeing everyone's abodes uh, in this uh, panel. So everyone's been touched in one, uh, one way or another. But recently, one uh, web entered Chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy under US law, and they cited the COVID pandemic specifically as one of the reasons investors are pulling out. So I'd like to ask the panel, do you agree? Are, pan are investors pulling out of space investments due to the pandemic? Are you seeing issues similar to OneWeb? Mark, what do you think? Uh. So I get the softball. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a great question, and of course, it's top of mind for everybody for lots of reasons. Um, so I'll answer a little bit here, and I know everybody else is going to jump in. So I, I'll try not to go on too long. Um, for sure, the pandemic is creating systemic risk, right? It is not directly applicable to most businesses. It is a systemic risk that everybody is managing. It could be because their customers are more directly affected. It, it's because we're not able to travel and do sales and business development. Uh, it's because the capital markets got really volatile for particularly for a month or so. Um, and as a result, everybody wanted to see how that shook itself out. Did OneWeb go bankrupt because of the pandemic? I don't think so. Um, I'm not trying to be provocative on that, but I think there were challenges with the business model um, and challenges with the market. I, you know, I always wondered why there was a need for more than one space-based internet 
you know, broadband business, and there were significant technology challenges to address for any of them to be successful. And I think it, it was just a hard problem. And at some point, people want to see results, and the results weren't there yet. And as a result, investors decided, I need to focus on other projects if I'm going to put this much money to work. Um, where we see it most directly has been that that people in the VC and private equity communities have have decided to kind of put pencils down on new investments, make sure their businesses that are going to be winners and their minds are short up, which means they focus less time on new investments and more time on existing investments. I think Will said it earlier, right, making sure that balance sheets are short up and everybody's got what they need, you know. That, that becomes a priority versus thinking about other new investments. I think that has changed, right? Like, again, the first month, there was a heavy-duty volatility. I think there's people that are ready to put capital to work right now. Um, and so the pandemic is an issue that everybody has to manage, and the businesses that manage it well will do well, and those that don't, won't. All right. Thank you, Mark. Uh, will, what are you seeing? So I, I guess I, I, I'll only try to add to what Mark said, because I think he covered a lot of really important ground on this. Uh, I think that, you know, we, we, we see in technology markets, we see these cycles where a lot of value gets assigned that is really contingent value. It's contingent on certain positive developments happening. And I, I always get this sort of uneasy feeling as an investor when I feel like perfect execution is being priced into every company uh, because perfect execution is, <laughs> I've never actually seen it in practice in my life. And, and I think oftentimes you, you do get this kind of mindset in, in kind of the private capital markets. I think that's been a big factor uh, and that has led to outsized expectations that, that didn't really take into account the dependencies that a company like a OneWeb had on certain partners or on certain technical breakthroughs. And that's just one example. Um, you know, the flip side of this, which is also actually worth talking about is the Intelsat bankruptcy, which is, you know, Intelsat, this is an extraordinary company, of course, and has been part of the fabric of our industry for a long time. And yet the seeds of its predicament financially were sown a long time ago by just how levered up that business was because it had such extraordinary cash flows, because it was such an incredible business. Uh, it could it could tolerate a level of, of leverage that is, is sort of has, has been mind blowing for years. So you have you have this kind of dichotomy in, in the market around these things. If you bring it all down to the place that I think most of us are focused, the pandemic has um, both it has accelerated some sales and partnership processes for our companies. So we have seen, particularly among companies that sell into the intelligence community. Uh, a lot of demand for capabilities that support a work from home architecture and that that's actually accelerating the onboarding of new capabilities um, in the intelligence community because th their legacy systems are, are essentially restricted in classified environments. Uh, I think that's a great insertion point for a lot of uh, these newer companies that has come about because of the pandemic. The flip side of that, of course, though, is what Mark said, which is 
here we are now uh, more than three months into work from home and it sure is hard to go out and develop new prospects and and build new pipeline and and create new forecastable business when you can't even sit face to face uh, with a customer so i see those two things at a, at a at more of a micro level kind of working uh, across our companies right now all right thank you will um well, I'd like to move on for that to the other risk I identified. Um, I, I so, did have a comment on that. Oh, yeah, sure, Lisa, go ahead. Yeah, the, the interesting outcome of COVID for um, us in terms of uh, Explore, my space company, is that access has ramped up. And so the ability to talk to individuals that we would have had to fly to D.C., our entire team, for a half an hour meeting has changed. They want calls and they want to have 40 people on a call to find out what's going on. And I'm finding that to be an incredible boost during this period that they're, it's not just doors are shut. For, for some companies, doors are opening. And so that's a good side, the good side of it. Um, there are, I think it's a time that everyone's refocusing and you've got this ability to to not have travel. So there's more of a singular focus at the company and the culture of the company, I think, uh, rallying around um, that singular focus to get things done and to execute and to figure out new ways. Um, I've never used LinkedIn as much as I do today. I have to say it's been uh, wonderful and props to them uh, for that you know great business but um, the ability to reach out I think has never been greater and with people that are interested in what you're doing um, for early stage companies out there this is a time for growth I believe great thank you Lisa thanks for uh, uh, letting me come back to you for that um, I, I, I just have to respond to that real quickly um, I've seen the exact same thing. Um, we're raising our second fund and we're having more luck getting actual access to LPs than we've ever had before simply because we are more available on Zoom and other fora um, than we've ever had before. And the investors did take a, a, a bit of a break between April and May but once they realized that the planet wasn't coming to an end, but it was just going to be different, they started investing again. And so it's the same businesses, same way of, of deciding whether or not to do an investment. Um, life has a little bit more friction to it, but I definitely have to say the access and getting in front of people is a lot easier now than it used to be. And I hope we keep that. Great. Thank you, Michael. Um, so that lets me segue, actually, that, that reliance on telework and um, internet-based solutions to conduct business lets me segue into that other area of risk that I identified, which was cybersecurity. So um, I'd like to ask the panelists, you know, that continues to be a risk for most company. Um, a recent CNBC report Business report noted that investors are growing increasingly wary of investing in companies with legacy security vulnerabilities and that cybersecurity is becoming a part of the due diligence in investing in a company. Are you seeing that in the space sector and uh, what comments do you have to make about that and those types of risks? Will? Um, I think it's a it, it's become much more of a consideration in 
our due diligence and just particularly in our expectations for the companies and how they design a space-based architecture. Cybersecurity threats are, of course, increasing all the time. Everyone uh, on this panel and in the audience is aware of that. What, what's underneath that statement, though, is that the vulnerabilities of legacy systems are becoming more and more apparent. And here again, I think we find another important insertion point for a lot of new space companies. Being able to approach the cybersecurity question uh, with a clean sheet of paper and being able to design a more modern security architecture that's really meant to, to become more resilient over time, um, that's an opportunity that we have as we, as we put new capability into space that, that legacy companies don't necessarily have. So it's part of our diligence, it's part of our thought process, it's part of the product expectation I think that we have uh, in each of our companies. Um, it's also just a fundamental moving target for any company. All right, thank you. Do any of our other panelists wish to add anything uh, to that? Okay, great, terrific. Sorry, sorry. I, oh, I'll go ahead. That, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sorry, I was, anyways. The, the no, new, it was a time <laughs> You know, for Razor's Edge, uh, we're we're really focused on technologies that are, for lack of a better term, dual use, right? Commercial and government. And so, for us, cybersecurity has always been a key part of any diligence, uh, because if you really want to sell data or products uh, to the kinds of customers Will's described and others have described here, intelligence and DoD and Homeland, you know, where where those those uh, items are going to be uh, of hopefully high value to the government side and therefore of high value to adversaries. Um, cybersecurity has always been a key part of that discussion. So if you're not, you're not prepared to build in the right protective safeguards into your system to make sure that when the time comes and you're you know, starting to deliver stuff live, that, 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 that those customers can trust and rely that your system is solid, you're not going to be doing any business with those kinds of customers. It is one of the first questions that get asked in any BD meeting, um, you know, on the sales side. So it's 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 just a huge part of doing business if you think you're going to take your space business and do some business with the U.S. government, especially. All right, thank you, Mark. Uh, I'd like to close out that one last topic I identified with risk before I turn it over to uh, questions from our audience. And, and that really is the degree of foreign investment that we're seeing enter into the space investment marketplace. So at least 35 to 40% of private investment in space is now coming from overseas investors. Are there risks and concerns that US companies need to be aware of when entertaining overseas investment dollars into their businesses? Michael? Sure, um, so yes, we, we've seen and we do raise uh, money for our funds from overseas investors. And so there are a lot of rules around that, but one of the things that venture funds um, kind of take on as a responsibility is acting as a, a, a buffer between the investors and the, and the companies and making sure that information doesn't, doesn't leak between the two. Um, we are seeing some companies that are taking foreign money and are taking enough of it to actually trigger CTS review and that can is not difficult, but it's not trivial and does delay deals sometimes. So you need to take that into account. Um, but 
the, the key is know your customer to, to, to quote the banking regulation. Um, for most of us that are on LinkedIn, we are, we can identify someone who is phishing that's asking us about investment because the accounts haven't been around long. The questions are weird and you know that there are people out there looking to, to, to steal IP and you can kind of tell. Um, it's not very sophisticated, um, but the sophisticated ones we have to, what we have to, to look out for. And that's where Cepheus as an organization and some of the, the, the other resources we have out there can really help. Um, in most cases, the, uh, um, the anti-money laundering list and KYC regulations can help you from making significant mistakes. But yes, do your Cepheus filings. All right, thank you, Michael. I can um, comment on the Cepheus just for a second, um, sure. that the smartness of some companies that are accepting larger funds um, that have the ability to um, to, to do that uh, diligence process for Cepheus, um, that, that that there are um, eight funds that are, are are well adept at that process, and so those are those are well uh, run organizations. But for day to day, um, the lurk factor is very high in terms of lurkers that want to get your information and then say thank you very much, but I'm not interested in investing. So um, that is a problem that I think is a bit pervasive, as well as even U.S. Um, companies that are doing funding that don't realize um, the sensitivity of space companies, that space companies are like defense companies, that you should not be sharing data even when you think it's okay. Uh, so there's that uh, hurdle to climb. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Well, I'd like to, with the time we have remaining, um, move on into some questions from our audience, if we might. And um, to try to get as many of these as possible, I'm going to ask the panelists to do kind of a lightning round, which is if you think you want to speak to that one, we'll, um, we'll take that response and then try to try to move on to the next question. Um, so here's a question from an audience uh, member who says, how much are, are your investment decisions influenced by the government's interest uh, in a specific technology or their lack of interest? Who would like to take that one? Um, I'll take that one real quick. Uh, we are looking for businesses, not government contractors, but um, that said, having a diverse um, source of customers, whether it's government and commercial, is kind of key. So going back to, uh, I think what Will said earlier, it's, it's dual use. Um, so government as a customer is okay. Government as the only customer is not okay. All right. Thank you. Um, next question from our audience. Is a business worth more to invest in if they have a path towards an IPO versus a path that leaves them held privately? Jane? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I want to grab this question because I think it's a, it's a little too easy to fixate on a company going public as a, as a sort of significant event. As, as investors, I, I don't think many of us spend a lot of time sort of pounding on this word IPO. Um, all of us spend a lot of time thinking about the path to a high growth, high margin, capital efficient business. What you can just sort of intrinsically describe 
as a valuable business. And you know, when we think about that at RRE and when we think about it in the space sector, we think about it as a company that can grow better than 100% every year, that can achieve gross margins of 65 to 80%, that can achieve net operating margins in excess of 20%. And if we can do that, if we can get to that level in a capital efficient way, which is has been historically the big question about the space and particularly the satellite sector, can we get there in a capital efficient way, then uh, we're, we're pretty enthusiastic. Uh, and I think we're right at this magic moment where we're going to see a couple of companies reach escape velocity that have the qualities I talked about a minute ago that have done it in a pretty capital efficient way. And even better, without the debt burden that has, has characterized so many of the good space companies of the past. Are those companies that can go public? In a good market, probably so. Are there co those companies, some of them might still stay private because they're just more valuable staying private? Absolutely. But let's not treat the IPO as anything more than just a financing event in the life of what is hopefully a, a very good series of companies. All right, thank you, Will. Um, next question. Um, from the investor perspective, are there technologies that are currently on the table or emerging that appear to be game-changing or emerging in relation to the technologies of the past? I, I interpret this question to say, are there emerging technologies that are making new business opportunities in space available and exciting or new emerging technologies that are just of interest of themselves? Maybe Mark or... Well, Lisa's got her hand up. I'll just go real. Oh, all right. And I'll just. Uh, I'll, I'll we'll let you both answer. How's that? <laughs> I'll, I'll go real quick. You know, for me, uh, I've said this before on other panels. You know, an area that I'm particularly interested in, you know, is how we're going to uh, overcome the dependence on the GPS infrastructure. Um, you know, location-based services, where I think space assets can play a big role, not an exclusive role, but a big role. Uh, working in partnership with assets on the ground um, and software and high-performance uh, processing. Okay, Lisa? Well, since Mark responded that way, I'll have to mention that Explore is building that next-generation GPS architecture for cislunar space. So it does not rely on our existing GPS, and that is transformative. So we are thinking about next-gen capabilities that enable new marketplaces. And I think there are some other companies that have that mindset as well. And if we can go back to components just for a second, because they're always so much fun. Uh, you know, you have people that have uh, big, big size components, and then they can fit in the, a thruster that can fit in the palm of your hand and have um, extraordinary capability. And what does that do for um, in-space propulsion and, and transportation in space? Those are really, uh, there are small components that can be key enablers for the future. So we do look at companies like that. And um, we did invest in Orbit Fab that's working on the capability to do uh, on-orbit refueling, and um, I think that you know, as we look at uh, having longer and longer duration missions, they enable that. So it's hard enough to get into space, and if you're going to have your mission limited by propulsion, uh, if we can t take that 
element out of the equation and get rid of what I like to call propulsion anxiety, uh, we could be in orbit longer and bring back more data that would be uh, providing more value for each mission. So lots of interesting capabilities out there right now. Great. Thank you, Lisa. All right. I'd like to uh, try this next question. It's a little bit long, but I'll try to read it here. Um, some satellite imagery companies have been very quiet about the status of their constellations, even as they're about to launch five or six satellites. How do you decide if companies like that are worth the continued investment to, tr to keep trying over others if their satellites are launching, but continue to not be operationally viable of customers. So um, let me try to uh, rejigger that question just a, a tad as I understood it, which is you've got satellite companies that are launching five or six uh, satellites at a time, but yet uh, we're not quite sure whether those constellations are going to be viable or if those uh, satellites are going to deliver on the promise uh, versus satellite companies that um, are a little more um, further down along in the maturity path. Um, would anybody like to pick up on that question? Um, I'll, I'll take a quick stab at it um, because the thing that we measure not is, is not so much how many satellites have, have you built or launched, but how many customers have you signed up and, and are they happy? Um, and I think in a lot of cases, um, people that are not looking at the finance side of it are looking at the hardware and spaces as a measure of, of their success um, when it really is the customers that are signing up. And we see this in the, in the entire rest of the, the, the IT world where you can raise enough money to be able to get the product, but if nobody buys it, you still have a dead product. Um, but I, I think that um, we're gonna be seeing a, a little bit of that uh, where constellations get kind of 25% built out, but then the revenue doesn't show up. And so you may have some acquisition opportunities around that. Great, thank you. Um, I'd like to ask this next question from a customer. You asked it in the context of SpaceX, but I think the, the question is a little bit more general. Have you seen any changes in telescope or antenna technology over the last several years that are of interest? Um, I'll take this one too, just real quickly. Um, I think the antenna technology at Umbra um, is kind of game changing just because of the, the, the quality of the antenna itself in terms of stiffness, but the, the compaction ratio, how, how tightly you can get it packed into the payload fairing um, allows you to do ride share capabilities for launch, reduces your cost, but you now have in-space capability that's equivalent to something much, much larger. And that's gonna have a lot of interesting applications beyond just synthetic aperture radar. Um, I am personally looking forward to um, some very large aperture uh, optical and other types of telescopes being built uh, in, using in-space assembly. Um, I would really love to see a two kilometer aperture optical telescope one day. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, we've got one minute left and I'm just gonna ask one last question for everybody. And I think we will have um, actually gotten to just about all of our audience questions at that point. And, and this question um, really is more a history question. And um, you know, we're bringing new people in our community all the time. And um, it's sometimes easy to forget that people haven't been here for the whole ride. So this question goes to what really uh, tick, what really changed 
in the 2015 timeframe that really started to make space attractive and I'll, I'll as an investment opportunity and I'll add to that um, how has those conditions matured or grown that created that opportunity changed over time and that will close out our panel with that question who would yeah. like to take that one I'll take, I'll take that one because that was actually when we made our first investment. Um, so we invested in Spaceflight in 2015. We had followed the market for years before that, and my partners and I have a long history of working as operators in one form or another, you know, in the space marketplace. And for us, you know, not being the, the largest fund in town, we had to, you know, get comfortable with the idea that these businesses could be capital efficient in a way that we could meaningfully participate as an, as an investor. And, and for us, the tipping point came because we believed that the launch bottleneck was ending, that, that the successes of SpaceX and, and Soyuz and, you know, a whole host of other launch related businesses were going to make that part of the equation much less expensive, much less risky. And as a result, all the advances that were going into satellite and sensor technologies that enabled you to drive a small effective cost instrument could be actually be launched on the kind of cadence you're talking about. I will tell you, we kind of whiffed on that. It has not proved out that way. That problem has pervaded pervaded over the last five years and has been a continuous problem for, for our satellite-based businesses. That is not a solved problem by any means at this point. All right. Thank you, Mark. Um, with that, I'd like to turn it back over to Andy at this point and to also to thank each one of our panelists, Mark, Will, Lisa, Michael. Um, what a wealth of experience and insight you brought to our listeners today, and your time is greatly appreciated. Um, I'm sure our audience uh, got much value out of your uh, contributions today. I'd like to thank the audience for their time and attention today. I really appreciated it, and I really appreciated the opportunity to host this panel. I sure learned a lot. I hope you all did too. And with that, Andy, I will turn it back over to you to close out. Thank you. Thank you.